Hello there, and welcome to Not The Farmer's Wife podcast. I'm CJ Steedman, and I'm definitely not the farmer's wife. I am a mum, a partner, a full-time off-farm worker, and enthusiastically a lady farmer. On our farm, Mojo Homestead, we grow chickens, goats, cows, and bees. We practice regenerative agriculture and holistic management. If, like me, you love all things farming and homesteading, and if you'd like to learn from the female farmer's perspective, then I'd love to have you along for the ride. So let's get farming. G'day everyone and welcome to another episode of Not The Farmer's Wife. I'm CJ Steedman, I'm your host and I'm Not The Farmer's Wife. And this is my first attempt at um, recording my podcast for YouTube. So hopefully everything works. If it doesn't, um, <laughs> it'll be a really terrible video recording. But hopefully the audio recording is working just fine. Um, and we'll see how we go at the end. Um, so uh, we're heading into the month of August. And the month of August for us here at Mojo Homestead is all about preparation. And that's preparation of several things. Um, because like most homesteads or small farms, uh, we have a lot of different things on the boil at the same time. So we have um, garden preparation. And I have to admit, the garden preparation is probably my worst thing. It's the thing that I always fuck up the most. Um, I'm not a gardener. I'm, I have a brown thumb. I have to work really hard at preparing gardens and getting good vegetation out of gardens. I am not a natural by any stretch. Um, we also have um, livestock preparation. That's my thing. The livestock preparation I'm far better at. Uh, we'll talk about that next week. Um, we also have the preparation of the beehives because um, I am a beekeeper and I have seven hives. And so there is work that needs to be done in the lead up to their spring um, flow season, uh, which we'll talk about in week three. And then I think I'm going to talk about orchards and fruit trees, which not being a gardener, a natural gardener, um, orchards and fruit trees are always going to be something that I have to work at, a bit like the veg garden. It, it's not a natural thing for me. I really do have to put the effort in. But the effort, effort is so worth it. Um, we had our first apples off our tree last year and, oh, my goodness, the kids were just they were amazed. They couldn't believe how good they tasted. They taste nothing like the apples you get in shops um, because they haven't been in cold storage for months and months and months. They were fresh off the tree. <laughs> so, and the last week I'm going to discuss a little bit about, because it's a five-week month, I'm uh, going to discuss a little bit about um, uh, equipment preparation and just making sure that everything's running perfectly before the big crunch months come. And, and I see spring and summer as my big harvest months. They're months that I have a lot more to do. Um, I have milking of my goats. I have my bees that I have to check on and clean out. And this year I'll be requeening, so it'll be interesting to see. Um, my veggie gardens, obviously, I want to grow more than what I do each other year. I, I try and aim for a bit better the next year because I'm still learning that. Um, but all the things that happen happen in spring and summer and you are really under the pump during those months. So my aim is to have a full month of preparation in August and then be able to move into September when I start milking and have everything running smoothly. So uh, this week we're discussing all things garden. Now, before we get started, um, I just want to let everybody know not to forget that you can go and get your 
uh, free guide to backyard chicken keeping that I have. It's absolutely free, no obligation. Yes, you do have to give me your email. No, I won't spam you. Uh, but feel free to go and grab it. Even if you've already got chickens, there might be something that you haven't thought of that's in the guide. Um, otherwise, you can just jump on to www.mojohomestead.net and you'll see there's a sign up there for our newsletter. So jump on and, and get on board with our newsletter. I send it out once a week, just keeping people up to date with what we're doing. Now, most of it does apply to the Southern Hemisphere. So for all my friends in the Northern Hemisphere, hello, thank you for listening. Um, however, it would be the opposite end of things for you guys because I'm looking at it from an Australian perspective. Um, so jump on and grab that. Don't forget that. Also, too, I have got my backyard uh, chicken keeping course coming up in August is our next course. Um, it, it's not super expensive. I do charge for it, but it's not super expensive. But if you are at all interested in getting backyard chickens and you haven't decided whether or not backyard chickens are right for you, jump on with my guide, grab that, have a read of that. I'll have a webinar coming up in the week leading up to the Backyard Chicken Keeping course and you can jump on that and that's a webinar all about which breed of chicken is best for your backyard. Um, it's a super, super helpful webinar. Um, it goes through all the basic breeds. So I think we discussed about 10 breeds in there and it just gives you some background as to which breed is probably going to suit your family and environment the best. Anyway, enough about all the things coming up in August. Now, garden preparation, starting with the soil. Everything starts with the soil. And disclaimer over all of this, remember I said I'm not a gardener. So a lot of this is basic. And if you're a really super cool, keen gardener, you might want to skip this episode because it may not have a lot in it for you. But if you're just starting out or you feel like me, you're a bit of a brown thumb, uh, there might be some good tips in here for you. So the main thing is to ensure that you have super healthy soil because the plants that you're growing, and I actually think I heard Richard Perkins um, say it just the other day, uh, it, you're not growing plants, you're growing soil and the plants just, the soil gives the plants the opportunity to grow. So you can buy test kits for things like pH levels and nutrient levels in soil. But honestly, I think that I get more out of it just by looking at the soil. If I try and um, dig into the soil and it's a, a lovely dark, loamy kind of um, dark brown, you know, and it smells good and there's earthworms in there and that kind of thing, then, then I know that my soil is pretty healthy. Now, to get it to that point, I'm a big one on putting compost in. Um, we have a compost pile that we use that's quite substantial and anything that doesn't go as chicken scraps goes into the compost pile but also to manure that we get out of the chicken yards um, when we do clean out the goat areas um, any excess um, cow dung or goat poo or anything like that goes into the compost pile as well um, we even bury any deceased birds that are that died from natural causes so we won't eat them if they died from natural causes because we don't know what caused it um, I've buried carcasses in there uh, because the nutrient goes back into the compost pile. So that compost goes into my garden beds. And around August is when I start doing that. Uh, now, I live in a very cold, temperate climate. Um, I'm outside of Canberra in New South Wales. And that means that we do get frosts. <laughs> we get some really good frosts. Um, and it is quite cold up until probably the end of September. We start to really warm up. So uh, the soil prep now is me digging in compost into my garden beds 
and making sure that there's a good mix of, of soil and compost in there. If, if the garden beds are a little low, then I'll try and get some more soil in. But I don't like to buy soil in. I use soil that I already have on the farm. Um, if you're in a small urban environment, you would probably need to top up your soil levels in that regard. So adding lots of organic matter, though, will, will help that kind of along. Now, the other thing to check for is um, drainage. If you have garden beds that are not um, able to drain away properly, um, you'll end up with like a clay mass and you don't want that that's not good there's some plants that like that kind of base but most don't most like a really good well-drained soil um so but you want it to the soil to be at a level where it's going to absorb water so if you were to once you've turned it over and you've got your compost in there if you turn that soil over and then put some water over it and see how quickly that water drains away if it drains away too quickly and it's too like sandy in in texture the soil then that won't be good for growing but if it also sits just like like our driveway at the moment because we've had a stack of rain in the last couple of weeks um if it just sits in puddles on the top of the garden bed well that's not great either so you want a nice combination where the water sits there briefly and then slowly absorbs into the soil and that means that the water will get to those roots of those plants really well um and it also stops with erosion so the next thing that on my list i'm just looking at my list here is um clearing and preparing the garden beds and that goes hand in hand with adding that compost and organic matter um, if you've got a worm farm or anything like that that's a good place to get a lot of organic matter from too but clearing any debris out and certainly our garden beds do get a little bit of debris in there because we're quite windy here but we also have chickens that get into our garden beds so um, clearing debris out, making sure that the raised edges around your bed, if you have a raised bed, if you're just doing it straight into the ground, then make sure that you've got a bit of an edge there. You know, even if it's just putting um, some small rocks or a piece of timber or anything or just some little garden edging around it, just so that when you're doing anything like uh, mowing or whippersnipping or anything like that around the edge of the garden bed, uh, that you're not going to damage the plants in the garden bed. That's the only reason why I have a garden edge on mine is so that I can get in there, mow, brush cut. In our case, we have a big brush cutter and we get in there and clear with that. Um, I have a resident blue tongue lizard who lives in my garden area. And unfortunately, just about every year at some point, I let the grass around the garden beds grow a bit too long walk in there and nearly tread on him. He hisses at me. I shit myself and go, fuck, it's a snake, and go running out of the garden area and then come back and go, oh, it's the blue tongue lizard. And the handy helper comes and moves him, and puts him down on the rock with our Cunningham skinks and he doesn't like it down there and he comes back up to the garden bed three months later. Uh, but it's nice to be able to have a walkway area around your garden beds that's clear. Now, if you live in an area like we do where snakes are a problem, then you don't want shit piled up around your garden beds. If you've got corrugated bits of old timber, um, gardening tools stacked up around there, your chances of getting snakes in there are going to be so much higher. Um, if you have any mice or rat problems, the snakes will come straight in for that. So you don't want debris around the garden beds. You want the garden beds nice and clear so that you can look and see where you're walking before you go in there. Um, also to uh, think about your mulching, what kind of mulching system you're going to use. In our case, we um, sometimes use straw, particularly through spring, 
in our goat pens when we have our goats kidding. So when the goats go into kidding season, we have straw that we put down um, and sawdust sometimes that we put down depending on how many kids are in there. And we use that straw um, to compost our garden beds because it's got um, goat pee, goat poo, all spread into it as well as some food because they, they're messy buggers. Um, but the straw is nice and brown, and that's a really good mix for our compost. But it also, we, we use it in particularly over our potato beds because we grow quite a few potatoes. And when we put the straw across there, it allows the potato shoot to come up through the straw without kind of pushing it down, um, but still covers the ground and keeps it nice and moist. You always got to say that word, didn't you? Moist. Got to say it somewhere in a gardening topic. Uh, so next thing on my list, let me have a look what I've got next, is uh, ordering and sourcing your seeds or seedlings. Now, I have talked about it previously about being frugal and, and saving seeds, but if this is your first year trying to grow some veggie garden um, stuff, then you're not going to have seeds saved from last year. Or if you're like me and was really, really under the thump last sum, summer and didn't save any seeds, you got to start from scratch, <laughs> which I'm trying not to do this year. So you need to work out where you're going to order your seeds from. Now, uh, I don't have a preference in, in particular. I Some people prefer to use only heritage seeds. Um, some people prefer to just go to Bunnings and buy as many seed packets as they need to. Um, I've found a really good source of seeds online. It's called Eden Seeds here in Australia. Now, I know that in America, and I'll try and put the link in my little show notes, there is a, a seed company that I've looked at and, oh, my God, I wish I could get seeds from them into Australia. Unfortunately, customs have this issue with seeds coming in. So there are some seeds you can buy, but mm, not as many as I'd like. There's a lot of plants I'd like to buy that I can't get. Um, another one is... And I can't think of it. it. Used to be a gardening magazine that used to come out, and um, uh, I know that the the workshop for it is down in Melbourne. And I used to buy seeds from them too because they have a lot of those unusual things like spaghetti squash that you can't get anywhere else. Um, they've also I've got some seeds that I'm going to try this year called a miracle tree, and I can't even remember what it's supposed to grow. But I think you make tea out of the leaves, and it's a miracle. I don't know. I'll tell you when I grow it. Um, but getting your seeds, sort out where you're going to get your seeds from. Are you just going to go with your generic Bunnings ones? Now, something to keep in mind with the generic Bunnings ones, uh, if you are seed saving, some of those plants have been treated so that the seeds are no good for saving. So you need to consider that. And I might do a post through the week of uh, what to look for for seeds that are like a heritage seed that you can definitely save and definitely keep and use for growing later on. Um, and I'll, I'll so keep an eye out on my socials through the week and you'll see that. If you're not already on there, you can find me at Not The Farmer's Wife or at Mojo Homestead. So go and have a look there and I'll post something through the week. Um, then, of course, there is the issue of starting your seeds. Now, um, because, like I said, we live in a really cold environment here uh, and that cold environment is not very conducive to um, having seeds just growing out in the paddock in August and September. I tend to start my seeds in seedling trays on the veranda. Our veranda has um, corrugate um, sheets, clear sheets all around the edge of it, and that means that 
we can um, keep the temperature at a more constant level. Um, my goal eventually is to have a beautiful large greenhouse. <laughs> the handy helper keeps looking at me and going, what the fuck, another job for me to do? Uh, but yeah, I want a greenhouse eventually. Um, I actually want to build a solid uh, fixed greenhouse that I can heat if I need to. Hello, avocados and bananas, <laughs> but that's a long way off. Um, but definitely consider what you're going to do as far as starting your seeds. Um, do you have a veranda area? Do you have a spare bedroom or a sunroom or something like that that you could put a little, you know, maybe one of those little IKEA shelving racks, just the little metal ones so you can wash it all down, sterilize it afterwards. Um, somewhere where the sun comes in or not even direct sun, but a, a nice humid kind of heat comes in or that you can keep a nice humid heat in that room um, if you've got an area like that that would be the bomb that would be awesome for it seedlings like and i'm going to say the word again moist <laughs> humid uh reasonably constant temperature they don't like fluctuations unless certain seeds do some seeds need the cold to germinate some plants need the cold to germinate but for the most part when you're starting a seedling it's going to want a more constant temperature and and that humidity uh, level to be reasonably high to get it to sprout so uh look at your seedling mixes too your soil mixes so you may want to buy um, a seedling mix or if you have got a really awesome compost patch going like we do um, i just go out there turn it over a couple of days before I want to use anything and then go out and just grab a little bit of um, compost from the side and usually it's broken down enough if it's been going for well ours has been going for three years now so when I do turn it over I usually get some really good ones uh, down one side which has been our older side so we've just started on our fresh side which is our new side uh, the other thing to think about is lighting like I say you don't want direct sunlight on the seedlings necessarily um, some seedlings want direct sunlight uh, but you definitely want um, direct light. So, and, and if you don't have a light source, then um, a fluorescent um, bar light or anything like that over the top. Um, I've seen these really Gucci, cool little garden things that they do now, which are uh, like a garden bed with a light that sits over the top of it that also throws out some heat. They're fairly expensive. Probably better just to find a window where there's not direct sun, but there is direct light and use that instead. Uh, and then obviously you're going to need to think about once the seedlings start to get to a certain point where they've grown sufficiently, um, your next step is to look at um, how you're going to acclimatise them to get them out into the garden bed. So once they've got to probably about that four to six week mark, maybe eight week mark if you've still got frosts happening, um, then the idea is to start moving them outside or opening windows or having you know a bit of cool breeze coming in um, leaving them out if you know it's not going to be a frost then the ideal thing would be to leave them outside overnight so that they start to acclimatize to that colder fluctuation in the in the temperature uh, before you actually plant them out and that that just stops you getting any too many losses you don't want you know to plant all your seedlings out and two days later they're all dead because they, they couldn't handle the fluctuation in the temperature so next thing on my list now this is one that I love and I'm still very much learning but um planning your crop, crop rotation <coughs> excuse me and companion planting um i love the idea of companion planting i still fuck it up all the time uh and i i don't know maybe some people are just super awesome at it and i'm just not uh, but crop rotation is a big one you really need to consider not planting the exact same plant in the exact same garden bed each year um, our potatoes certainly we swap them out into different areas um, 
when plants are growing in the same area constantly, they tend to have a buildup of pests um, or disease in that garden bed. So the idea of crop rotation is that by moving them around, you're ensuring that you don't have too many pests or, or too many diseases that are continually being exposed to the same plants. But also, too, some plants use a very heavy users of certain um, uh, nutrients. So you might have a plant that's super high in its use of nitrogen and, and it sucks the nitrogen out of the soil. You don't want to plant a nutrient a, a nitrogen heavy plant in that garden bed the next year. You want to move it on to another garden bed and plant one that doesn't drain in fact, you can, there are some plants that will actually put more nitrogen back into the soil. Um, and, and so the idea with crop rotation is to do that. Now, I'm not going to go into too much detail because I am still learning myself. Uh, I will try and put a post up through the week about it, you know, about how you can rotate crops. Um, but certainly companion planting is another method of doing that. And that is a really cool method for preventing a lot of pests as well. So you might have, and I'm trying to think of one off the top of my head, I didn't prepare in advance, but you might have something like, you know, cabbage moths and, uh, I'm going to say marigolds, but I don't think it is marigolds, but I know marigolds, if you plant them around the base of certain plants, the chances of certain pests coming in are much, much lower. So um, I think it's the same for, I want to say garlic, planting garlic near something can, can prevent that too. So there's certain plants that when you plant them together, they counteract the, the pest or disease issues for the other plant. <coughs> Sorry, I'm still getting over the flu at the moment, so I'm a bit coughy today. I had the flu again last week. I just can't win this winter. Uh, so using that beneficial system of of um companion planting uh can help you and again it's something i'm not an expert in i'm still learning myself but it's something to consider if you haven't already just google companion planting and i'm sure that there will be about a thousand million uh posts that come up about which plants can be planted with other plants to help them and protect them uh, same with crop rotation. If you um, Google crop rotation, I'm sure you'll get a list up and it'll probably be far more extensive than anything that I can tell you right now. Um, now, the next thing that you need to think about with your uh, preparation for your gardens coming into spring is um, repairing garden structures. Now, it might be like a no-brainer, like, well, why wouldn't you just repair it at the time? Over winter, we don't do a lot in our garden beds. Uh, we have garlic and um, we have kept some potatoes in the ground this year. Uh, garlic, potatoes, onions, things like that go over winter for us, but we don't grow a lot of other things over winter. We have a heavy, heavy frost here. Uh, I think the other morning we had a minus seven, which fucking kills. It kills everything. Even the plants that love frost, it seems to kill. So we don't do a lot in the garden bed over winter. Winter is our time to just have a little bit of downtime. We're not milking. We still have massive egg production happening at the moment because we got new girls at the beginning of the year. So they're all in the heavy lay period. Um, but normally everything kind of winds down over winter for us. So come yeah, the end of winter, heading into spring, uh, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to make sure everything's running right. And uh, garden um, structures and, and things that would house things out in the garden, now's your time to go out and do it. And that would be things like trellises. So we do grow a lot of our plants in an upright structure, even though we have 120 acres and we can spread out 
as far and wide as we want, I actually find that a lot of plants that I grow, uh, and like I say, no expert, the ones that I grow tend to, in, they do better growing up. So tomatoes, obviously, I grow my tomatoes quite high and as such I need trellises to support them because they won't support their own weight. Um, but also I love growing cucumbers um, and they do far better going up a trellis than what they do across the ground. I found that our ground, and I don't know whether it's just that our soil really retains some water, but our um, cucumbers tend to go a bit rotty on one side um, and it could be that I'm not spending enough time in the garden turning them so that they're getting sun on both sides. Um, zucchinis as well, we find that if we grow them slightly up a trellis, they, they tend to grow a bit better. Uh, what's our other one that we grow up? Um, oh, my peas. I grow peas. I love peas, the snow peas, and they grow beautifully up a trellis. Uh, but they do need to have their trellis sort of shaded. If they've got too much sun on them, they we get a baking summer here. So we might have the freezing cold winter of minus sevens, but we also get up into the 40s quite easily through summer over several days. So um, some plants need a bit more shade than others. Uh, we tend to grow corn on our sunny side, uh, which for us is our northeast. Um, we grow that on the, oh, sorry, uh, northwest we grow our corn because that way it shades our plants in the later afternoon. So late afternoon when they've already copped a whole full day of sun that gets to the northwest, and if we've got nice tall things like corn, and last year I grew a passion fruit vine over one of our um, fences, and that cast shade onto the other plants, which just gave them a little bit of a, a better chance of kind of getting through. Um, so those kinds of structures, we need to go out and repair them. Get, them. get them set up in advance. Even if your seedlings are this big and you're thinking, well, I don't need a trellis yet, why would I go and do that now? Honestly, the day that you realise you need to start trellising, it will probably be two or three days too late. Um, that's what I've found in the past. So it's better to have the structures in there around the garden bed, even if you don't have them set up, but have them within the vicinity so it's easy for you to set up and make sure you've got your, your twine for tying things up or if you're going to use old stockings. My mum always used old stockings. Um, I, I use twine. I've got gardening twine that I use to hold them up. Um, but anything that you need, make sure it is there ready to go because I guarantee you when you suddenly go, shit, tomatoes are starting to fall over, I need to, to string them up, you won't be able to find it. So make sure you've got all that. Uh, the last one I want to talk about was setting up your irrigation systems. Now, as I just said, we get a super, super hot summer. So summer for us is uh, 40 degrees from probably uh, about the first or second week of December through till mid-February. We can be getting 40 degree temperatures every day. Now, we don't get it every day, but it I've seen three or four days in a row and three or four days in a row will absolutely kill the garden um, there's not a lot of plants that really thrive in that super super horribly hot weather especially with direct sun straight down on them so we have a watering system now there's always debate about this do you water in the morning do you water in the night do you drip water do you spray water with a hose what do you prefer well Dripping water out of an irrigation drip is definitely more water conservative, I can say, because I've tried it. I've tried that one here and having a little drip feed system definitely conserves water. Uh, there is less evaporation on the top of the soil. 
Um, it, I think the, the plants grow better having a setup where you could say have the drip feeder going, I would suggest in the morning, but if you had a particularly hot series of days, I would go morning and night. Um, and having the drip feeder going, even if it's only 15, 20 minutes, like that's it doesn't use a lot of water when it's drip feeding. That being said, I love nothing more than standing in the garden with a bottle of beer on a really hot summer's afternoon and standing there with a the hose and hosing the garden. I that I don't know why, I just love it. I feel like it's like my super happy place where I can just relax and switch off and enjoy a cold boo, brew, brew. <laughs> can't even say it. <laughs> I, I don't drink beer very often, but on a hot summer's afternoon, that's when I want a, a can of beer or a bottle of beer. So I love standing out there doing that. But there are days when you run out of time. So if you can have a drip feed irrigation system set up in advance before your seedlings get out there, um, because believe me, it's harder to set it up when you've got plants growing. If you set it up before the plants are in, you can walk through garden beds, you can stand on things, you can poke shit in the ground to hold the irrigation pipes there, and you don't have to worry about your plants. So set it up in advance. And if you can, if you're a busy person and you don't have a lot of time in the afternoons maybe to check everything, I would suggest getting yourself a timer and putting it on timer so that you know 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes in the afternoon, your plants are all getting drip fed. And, and if you then, you know, on a particularly hot Sunday afternoon want to stand out there with a the beer in your hand and the garden hose, then you can still do that. Um, the plants in summer are probably going to love you for doing it, but it means that you don't have to stress about it. You don't have to sit back and go, shit, I forgot about the watering. Oh, my God, the plants are going to be dead tomorrow. You know, we've had three days at 38 degrees. Uh, it's going to kill them. Oh, and for my American friends, if you're not aware, 40 degrees for us is like 106, I think, for you guys. So, yeah, hot days, very, very hot days. Anyway, that I think, I'm just having a look, I think I have discussed everything that I wanted to. So that's obviously not an extensive list of things that you need to do to get your garden going, but that's what I do for my preparation in the month before I start thinking about planting. Now, I'll start my seedlings, depending on what I'm growing, I'll start my seedlings. Usually by the end of August, I've got seedlings started. So if I can spend any time that I have on the weekends through August, making sure that all those things are set up, it just means that when it does come time to plant them out, so usually um, early September is when we have had our last frost and that's when my seedlings will look at going out into the garden. Um, it just means that if I've got everything done, all I have to worry about is actually getting those seedlings started. Um, it, you know, if I've already composted into those garden beds and put a layer of mulch over them and things like that, it just makes it so much easier when you go out there and all you want need to do is just pop those seedlings straight in. Um, it's just going to save you a lot of time and hassle. Anyway, that's it for me from for this week. Um, it'll be interesting to see how my video turned out if you're watching on YouTube. Hi, if you are a regular podcast listener and you've just listened to all this on a podcast, if you want to go and have a look at my YouTube clips, Mojo Homestead on YouTube and you'll find me. Um, don't forget that if you haven't already signed up, jump on board and get that Backyard Chicken Keeping Guide. Honestly, I love the idea of helping people um, 
get themselves sorted with backyard chickens. I um, grow eggs and sell them. So I'm kind of doing myself out of a job by uh, getting people to have their own backyard chickens. But I honestly, I love the concept that you can grow something so simple that's such a hugely important food source um, in your backyard. You know, being able to feed your family fresh, what I consider to be pasture-raised eggs, um, free-range eggs. We all know that free-range eggs aren't free-range. I think the guidelines, particularly in the States, the guidelines for free-range show that they have to have access to direct sunlight, um, which, you know, some people can consider that to be a metre sticking out the end of their barn uh, where they can step out and get direct sunlight on them. And that's free-range. So they're still barn-raised uh, chicken eggs. Uh, they're still not chickens that are out on pasture with grasses and bugs and owls go crazy for the field mice um, out in the paddock and owls are way out in the paddock. I'll, I'll post a little short on YouTube uh, and on the other social medias to show you. Owls are definitely out in the paddock all day. They absolutely love it. They live their best little chicken life. So I love selling our pasture-raised egg, eggs to people um, but... If I can help people to grow their own, because obviously I can't sell to everybody, I'm in a tiny little corner of Australia, um, if I can help people to grow their own chicken eggs um, in their backyard, this nugget of goodness that they are health-wise, um, I'm a big believer that eggs should be a very large component of kids' diets. Um, my kids eat eggs literally every day um, and they're both healthy as. So I really am a strong advocate for eggs in your diet. Uh, but I would love to help you to get to know more about keeping backyard chickens. So go and get the guide. Uh, it's up on the screen there. Uh, if you're listening, it's www.mojohomestead.net backslash seven must knows. So it's the seven must knows that you have to know before keeping chickens in your very own backyard. Uh, anyway. Uh, that's it for me for this week and I will see you all next week. And if the video worked out fine, well, it'll be a YouTube clip and an audio one as well. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thanks so much for listening today. I hope you've enjoyed our time together. If you did, I'd be so grateful if you left me a review. I would also absolutely love it if you tagged me in your next post on your favourite socials at either Not The Farmer's Wife or Mojo Homestead. And don't forget to get your free guide to backyard chicken keeping at www.mojohomestead.net backslash seven must knows. And remember, grow the life you want to live. See ya.